Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Dan Wilburn. We're about ready to show you a video, um, and I just need to say something uh, ahead of time. It's, uh, it could be taken wrong, and uh, so I want you to be open-minded to it, and then I'll talk about it afterwards, okay? So can you just bear with me on this one? We end this week with a lesson in forgiveness from Steve Hartman on the road. It all went down on this block in Benton Harbor, Michigan. Back in 05, Jamel McGee says he was minding his own business when a police officer accused him of and arrested him for dealing drugs. You're saying the officer made it up? Yeah, it was all made up. Of course, a lot of accused men make that claim, but not many arresting officers agree. So you phonied the report? I did. I falsified the report. This is former Benton Harbor police officer Andrew Collins. Were you just trying to chalk up an arrest? Basically, the start of that day, I was going to make sure I had another drug arrest. And in the end, you put an innocent guy in jail? Correct. Yeah. You lost everything. I lost everything. My only goal was to seek him when I got home and to hurt him. Really? That was my goal. Eventually, that crooked cop was caught, served a year and a half for falsifying many police reports, planting drugs and stealing. Of course, Jamal was exonerated, but he still spent four years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Today, both men are back here in Benton Harbor, which is a small town, maybe a little too small. Hey, guys, thank you. Last year, by sheer coincidence, they both ended up at Mosaic, a faith-based employment agency where they now work side-by-side in the same cafe. Oh, excuse me. And it was in these cramped quarters that the bad cop and the wrongfully accused had no choice but to have it out. And I said, honestly, I have no explanation. All I can do is say I'm sorry. And Jamel says that was all it took. That was pretty much what I needed to hear. Today, they're not only cordial. Saturday, we went to the trampoline park. They're friends. Uh, You know, we talk about life. Such close friends. Not long ago, Jamel actually told Andrew he loved him. And I just started weeping because he doesn't owe me that. Uh, I don't deserve that, you know? Did you forgive for his sake or for yours? No, for our sake. Not just us, for our sake. Jamel went on to tell me about his Christian faith and his hope for a kinder (laughs) mankind. He wants to be an example. So now he and Andrew give speeches together about the importance of forgiveness and redemption. Grab this one, set it over there. And clearly, if these two guys from the coffee shop can set aside their bitter grounds, what's our excuse? Steve Hartman, on the road, in Benton Harbor, Michigan. And that's the CBS Evening News for tonight. Well, it was Jesus who said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. What if there were no forgiveness in the world? What if it weren't a concept that we all understood? 
What kind of world would we live in if there were no forgiveness? Can you imagine a world where there's only revenge or an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, dog eat dog, make them pay, get back at them, an ever-increasing revenant sort of world, angry, resentful, and clenched fists. I, I hesitated to show the video clip of the uh, incredibly humble police officer because cops, I think, in my opinion, have had such a rough time over the last few years. Uh, They can't seem to do anything right, according to the media. And uh, so I showed this clip to one of our police officers here this week uh, just to get their take on it to see how they would understand it. And uh, I agree with him. He said, um, it looks like CBS has got an agenda here. And... uh, you know, and so we both agreed um, that it has sort of a mixed agenda. And now, if you're African American, you may actually be angry that an innocent man forgave the cop at all. And uh, that's a whole other side of it. So, if we were just 25 minutes that direction, I wouldn't be saying what I'm saying. Uh, but since we're out here in the predominantly white suburbs, we have to say it a different way. So if you can move past the white cop and black man uh, thing, what you really have are two Christians, Christians, faith-based, as they say on here, two Christians who understand Jesus' words, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Two Christians who learn to forgive and be forgiven. And, And if you can watch yourself, even in this exact moment, on whichever side you relate to on this thing. And if something fumes up inside of you, now we're talking church right here and now. This is good. This is good. Let's see what we think about forgiveness here. In a world without forgiveness, bigotry, judgmentalism, revenge, spite, hard-heartedness, hatred, hurt, and violence... And what we so, so much call justice would rule the world. Justice means we get our way. Fortunately for the world, there's Jesus who, who's hanging on Pontius Pilate's cross and cries out, while he's being executed, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And anybody can realize that the Roman soldiers and the religious leaders knew exactly what they were doing. But Jesus is speaking about something different. They have no idea what scheme they're in. That we're going to turn the world upside down with this concept of forgiveness, reconciliation, and atonement. That one prayer of a man being executed unjustly changed the world. So this morning, I want to encourage us to forgive each other and forgive others. It is not a simple thing, and that's my entire thing of what I'm going to walk through is how hard it really is. And uh, when we get done with this morning, I would personally love for everyone to have these three words, what what shall I say, committed to memory. (laughs) Uh, It's a big uh, request, but I would love it if you had a concept about what goes on in forgiveness, and that's what I want to take you through. There are three stages in the process of forgiveness, and it starts at the bottom, There's forgiveness that happens at the beginning, which I'll talk about in a sec. And then we move up to reconciliation. And then finally, we move to restitution. 
And I'm going to explain all of these and take it from a biblical, biblical perspective. The, Dr. Lewis Smeads put it this way. This is his definition in a popular book called Forgive and Forget. Smeads says this. Forgiveness is God's invention for coming to terms with a world in which people are unfair to each other and hurt each other deeply. He began by forgiving us, and he invites us all to forgive each other, talking about God. God's invention for coming to terms with a world where people are unfair to each other. Forgiveness enters into an unfair situation. It's a no-win situation, just like the two men. To forgive another person, though, sets you, the offended person, free. This is what nobody gets. What we keep hoping for is revenge. But what really transacts in forgiveness is that you set yourself free when you forgive someone else. You are the one who is in bondage because you hold on to your resentment and your need for justice and revenge. You're like, that is a crazy statement because it sounds so absolutely unfair, and I totally agree. It is unfair. It's terribly unfair. It's wrong. It's terribly wrong. The offender still has to pay. This is not saying that justice doesn't take place and that the court system doesn't take place and all of that. But when we forgive, we, the one forgiving, is the one who is set free from what can become a lifelong, warm, comfortable hatred and hurt and resentment that takes over our entire identity. You can become your revenge and your bitterness. And that is a terrible place to be. For some of us, our entire lives become twisted by this bitter unforgiveness. We, we, to forgive does not mean that suddenly you're done, though, with all of your anger and hatred and rage. I, I remember a, a particular Christian woman years ago who was at work, and she took uh, what I would consider a very la-di-da sort of approach. Like, yeah, I totally forgiven. And then you, I could just tell by her eyes that she was glossing over. She's saying like, well, as a Christian, I'm not supposed to hate, and I'm not supposed to hurt, and I'm not supposed to feel bad or anything like that. And the fact is, when you're in forgiveness, you will be in a wash in an ocean of emotions. You will hate, and you will hurt, and you will cycle and swim and be tossed around on the waves of this mess of emotions. One moment saying, Father, forgive them, I'm released, I give them up, and you feel the peace of the Lord upon you, and in the next moment, you're flushed, you can feel the blood rush to the top of your head. That can go on for a very, very long time. That's the process of forgiveness. It's a terrible thing to be caged up in the bitterness of, and hatred. It's like a massive stone that you carry around in a backpack, and you've been carrying it for so long you don't even know you're carrying the backpack anymore. Your, your entire, uh, just to keep the metaphor going, your entire physique has now become accustomed to it. You develop muscles that sustain the bitterness. What is it? Perhaps somebody cheated on you? Perhaps your parents abandoned you? 
Perhaps you were abused as a child. An employer fired you with just a note, no talk, no explanation, just written off. Turn your keys, pack up your stuff, you're out. Perhaps another driver just bent your fender at the grocery store and then drove off. And the most frustrating thing about that is you tell yourself it's not supposed to be a big deal, and so, but for some reason you're lit. Who can forgive such an injustice? I'll tell you who. Jesus. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In the newspaper this week, a jet, an airplane went down over on its way to Cairo, right? In Egypt, from France to Egypt. Expert thinks it's ter- experts are beginning to think it's terrorism, right? 66 people are gone. Now the relatives are left with their loss, and perhaps you've seen it on the news. And, and no doubt the surviving families are crushed and they're raging, and they want justice. And it raises the question, will, we, will they ever learn to forgive? Will they ever be released? Certainly not right now. Not in the pain of it. Will they ever forgive? May 9th, a criminal shot a KCK detective. From my side of the fence, I'm just telling you my side of the fence, and this is not accurate, I immediately thought, did that detective hold off because of all the bad press about cops? I'm just telling you what I think. As no truth foundation to it. It's just my impulse. And will that wife and the children that he left behind, will they ever learn to forgive? Will we as a culture learn to forgive? Who can bring back the husband and the father? What price will everyone continue to pay? I've searched for years for a way to describe the transaction that happens in forgiveness And I've never been satisfied with what I came up with. I only can come up with this line. To forgive somebody is to eat the offense. See what I mean? To forgive someone is to eat, you eat the offense. Um, You guys got suggestions? Text me. It's what happens. It's unfair. You simply eat the offense. I don't know how else it gets done. I don't know what happens. But this is exactly what God has done for all of us. God eats our offense against us. Not literally, of course. God in Christ, hanging on the cross, takes away our sin. How? How does it happen? Is there some sort of an accounting project going on here? Is there a spreadsheet somewhere? Is there a balance sheet somewhere that says, okay, all of your life's sin in one column... And then Jesus' blood on the cross in another column, and when it gets down to the bottom, it's a zero sum. And that sounds really nice, but the problem is, is that it's not just Jesus hanging on the cross, it's God. It's God hanging on the cross. How does that math work? As Paul in Philippians chapter 2, what he says repeating what the early church was saying. This is one of the very first things the church ever said, by the way. It's like an early hymn. He says, Jesus, who is in the form of God, 
did not think that was something that he could latch hold of and, and play. Instead, he emptied himself, became obedient even to the point of death, hanging on a cross. He emptied himself. Taking on the form of a slave, he emptied himself. He became like a common criminal, not just an average Joe. He became like one of the worst, the dregs of the earth. And then he rose from the dead and God highly exalted him so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why is he Lord? Because God paid the price for all of us. Now, that's great doctrine and great theology. And we all agree with it in principle, yeah? But it doesn't help us get through the fender bender in the grocery store parking lot because that feels so real. And that's where the theory has to crash into the everyday working out of everything. The man Jesus is arrested. Jesus gets arrested and his friends and followers, who, by the way, vowed that they would never, ever, ever, ever desert him just hours before. They said they were going to die alongside of them. Every one of them betray him. Now, Jesus, in a fair world, has every right to say, you guys stink. I hope you all rot in hell. That's what he's supposed to be able to say. After betraying Jesus, something happens. The resurrected Jesus goes out to a shore, and there out in the water, several hundred yards away, the fishermen, Peter and his brothers and the others, have gone back to their old job. They're casting nets all night, catching nothing. Have you caught anything? Comes the voice across the water. You know how it carries, right? No. They grumble and grumble back. Cast your net on the right side of the boat. Why not? They do. And they can't pull the net in. There's so many fish. Peter, not exactly, you know, as my son would say, not exactly the brightest knife in the drawer. He said that a few years ago when he was younger. Realizes it's Jesus, jumps in the water, and swims to shore. There, over roasted fish, in silence, Jesus forgives his betrayers. It's interesting to me that somehow a meal, food, is involved in, in redemption and in forgiveness. In that culture, in Jesus' day, to eat with someone is to accept them. And that's why a Jew would never eat a meal with a Gentile. But here Jesus is eating with those who betrayed him. I think in silence. But then comes reconciliation. Then comes the reconciliation. If that falls off, no biggie. Reconciliation is where we heal. We hurt and we hate at the beginning. But somewhere in there, it's time to talk. And so beyond forgiveness comes this reconciliation. 
And it says in John chapter 21, the last chapter in the Gospel of John, where this whole scene's recorded, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, notice he's not calling him Peter anymore because that was his new name when they were all running around as disciples together, which meant rock. Peter was the rock. He's back to being Simon. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Two more times Jesus asked, do you love me, of Simon Peter, and Peter's crushed finally in the end and says, you know everything. What do I have to hide? Reconciliation is where the two parties get to say their peace. We heal. Forgiveness can take place even if the other offender is dead and gone, which I know for some of us is true. You were sexually abused as a child. That person's long dead and gone. Where's the reconciliation in that? It's not going to happen to the full extent, is it? Reconciliation is the chance to be heard. The abandoned wife gets to write a letter to the, to the husband that left her. You left me high and dry, she says in her letter. I feel unlovable, never able to be loved again. I feel like a loser, like I'll never win anything again. I feel like I just got the last slurp of the chocolate malt and you got to drink the whole thing and get off scot-free. All in a letter, all read. Now, when I've done this, and walk through couples on this sort of thing. It's very controlled. They arrive. Nobody says anything. There is one chair over there, perhaps with a table in between to get, create some boundary. I sit in the middle. And it's very, very controlled. You will now speak. You'll have five minutes. The other person speaks, not responding to the other. You have five minutes. One person leaves waits five minutes for the other person to be long gone, and then the other person gets to leave. We prayed, and that was it. Next time, you can, for two minutes, you can respond to the other person. A new statement is made, and this long process takes place where people get heard. That's the process of recon- reconciliation. It's the, um, it's the administrative part on this process. It's the hard part, where it's, and you need like a, a counselor or a spiritual director, or a pastor, or someone, or a really, really good, mature Christian friend to walk you through it. But we've seen it happen around here. It doesn't mean everything gets solved. It doesn't mean things are still, you know, not unjust and unfair. That's all still going on. And it doesn't mean it goes around, like I've said, the court systems or anything like that. It still happens. But reconciliation is about being heard, and it's not just fixing the wrongs. The wrongs just get aired out. So a lot of conflicts in marriage go like this. You didn't put away the dishes. You're a slob. You never help out around here. You always get your way, and I have to pay and pay and pay. You notice the you statements? You are a slob. You never put away the dishes. You know, and any I statement is all self-defense. I'm great. You're bad. But think about this. If you change out the language and learn this in our everyday living, Better is this. I feel taken advantage when you leave your plate on the counter. And don't put it in the dishwasher or whatever. I value each family member taking responsibility for their dishes. I value a family that shows hospitality to everyone. 
Notice it's an I statement. It's a value statement, not a you're a jerk statement, which doesn't get you anywhere. This is the day in and day out, moment by moment, don't go to bed with anger type of forgiveness that should go on and reconciliation that should go on. Reconciliation takes forgiveness to that next level of being heard, and it's hard work, and we'd all do very well to train ourselves in this in the small moments of dishes left on the countertop. (laughs) So that when somebody really does run into your car at the grocery store, you know how to treat it. As opposed to saying you're an idiot. Say, I value my car. Duh. Finally, there's restitution. And in restitution, we attempt to create a new relationship. In restitution, we, we come together. Restitution is a little bit of a 10-cent word. So coming together is probably a better way to put it. It kind of says what we're really after. Restitution doesn't always happen in the forgiveness process. The offender may be dead, like I've said, and it could be absolutely impossible. Restitution, you can hear the word restore in there. And it's where we begin to restore people to one another. It never goes back to the way it was. It's a new relationship with new parameters. Sometimes, sometimes restitution simply means we will keep our distance, agree to keep our distance from each other. And that's as good as it's going to get. Have a good life. But Jesus had an unusual and brilliant way of restoring Peter. Three times Jesus asked Peter if he loves him. And three times Peter gets a new calling. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. In in restitution, things never go back to the way they were, but you can get a new identity. And as we've often said around here, in forgiveness, you know you're making progress in forgiveness when you finally can wish the other person, person well. When you say finally, I hope they have a good life. Now, when I've done that, about a second and a half later, I go flush. And I'm like, golly. But you know you're making progress when you begin to say, I wish them well. It's a tough process, everyone. Reconciliation tries to put back together a new kind of relationship. Simon Peter, in this new identity, goes on to become the first bishop of the church that becomes Christianity. That's a wonderful new identity for Peter. But perhaps for us, restitution just simply means that we'll learn how to avoid each other. But somewhere in there, things get put back together. In 1994, up to 1 million people were killed in 100 days in Rwanda. In Rwanda, Africa, a conflict was fueled by tribal differences that really had been there for decades and decades In the 1950s, by the way, just so you know about the Rwandan genocide, the Belgians, who were beginning to be uh, put upon by the Rwandans, began to say say that the the Tutsis were in power and the Hutus, you guys, that's the other tribe, uh, are being, um, what would you call it, you know, set to the side, disenfranchised. But I'll leave that to another, you know, you can take that to your political science class or something like that. In 1999, an amazing thing happened after the 1994 Rwandan genocide of a million people. The church 
and I make that a strong point, the church, Christians, stepped in and set up the National Unity and Reconciliation Commission. They went through this exact process of forgiveness, reconciliation, and restitution. And they had murderers and the victims and the survivors of those families sit down together and make these statements. You did this to me. I feel this. I value that. My life is never going to be the same. You killed my husband. In some rare cases, the perpetrators, the murderers, actually went on to take on the role of the father after all this process had been done and actually became the breadwinners and did the family chores for those that uh, were left after they'd killed the husband. That's some serious reconciliation and restitution going on. It's possible, everyone, and it's because of Christianity, because of Jesus Christ, that this sort of thing gets done. What if there were no forgiveness in the world? That thing wouldn't happen. Now, if there were no Jesus and no God hanging on that cross crying out, Father, forgive them, what, would this forgiveness, this reconciliation, restitution ever happen? Will this be a, would this be a part? Who's to say? I don't know. Would we all have some? Sure, forgiveness is around. It's part of the human nature. But would it be to this extent if it weren't for the cross of Christ? I don't think so, personally. But I do know this, and I'll give you two stories here at the end, and then we'll come forward for the Lord's table. This is a true story about a Jew named Simon Weisenthal, and perhaps you've gone to a museum of tolerance sometime. He's the one who started all that. Simon Weisenthal, who during World War II was a prisoner in a concentration camp, and his story is about a crisis of forgiveness. One afternoon, Weisenthal was assigned to clean the garbage out of a hospital for German soldiers. As he cleaned up, a nurse walked over him, took him by the arm, and ordered him to come with her. He's still a prisoner, by the way. Ordered him to come with her and took him to the bedside of a soldier in a long row of beds where he found a stinking, rotting, young German soldier with his head wrapped in a yellow pus-stained bandage, and he was dying. Carl was his name, and he was perhaps about 22 years old, and he was an SS trooper. He reached out and clamped hold of Simon's hand as though he was never going to let go, afraid that Simon Weisenthal would run away. The dying soldier told Weisenthal that he had to speak to a Jew because of the things he had done to the uh, Jews uh, a few weeks earlier. He wanted forgiveness. He was ordered to round up about 200 people in a village, pack them into a house, uh, put full cans of gasoline inside, and then next they threw hand grenades inside and were ordered to shoot anyone who tried to escape. At a second floor window stood a man with a small child in his arms. His clothing was on fire. And beside him stood a woman and the child's mother in his arms. The man covered the child's eyes and with one hand he jumped out of the window and the mother followed. The soldier said, we shot. Oh God, I shall never forget it. It haunts me, the soldier said. I have longed to talk to a Jew to ask and beg for forgiveness. I know what I'm asking is almost too much, but without your answer, I cannot die in peace. Weisenthal was silent. He said, I stood up. I looked in the soldier's direction at his folded hands. At last, I made up my mind, and without a word, 
I left the room. And the German SS trooper went to his death, unforgiven by Simon Weisenthal, who survived the war. In that book, Weisenthal asks all of us, the readers, what would you have done? Here's the other story. This story, too, is about someone who experienced a prison camp during World War II. Her name is Corrie Tinboom. And she was freed after the Allies conquered the Nazi Germany, after Nazi Germany. Tinboom's hatred was still inside of her after the war. She set out on a journey of forgiveness. She was a Christian, and she knew she has to forgive because forgiveness was what Jesus had done, and that's what she was taught. She went around preaching about the dehumanization that went on in the camps. Her journey of forgiveness gave her the only power to heal the hurt and the anger inside of her, and talking about it was the only way she could heal. Corrie Ten Boom became famous. She preached forgiveness in Holland, in France, and in Germany. She tried to put back together Europe after World War II. In Munich one Sunday, she preached to a German crowd who was so eager to understand and hear what she had to say about forgiveness, that God takes away all of our sin. And she shared the gospel there. After the service, a man walked up to her and reached out his hand to her, expecting her to take it. Mrs. Tinboom, I am so glad that Jesus forgives us all of our sin, just as you say. Corey knew him. She remembered how she was forced to take showers with the other women prisoners while this beast looked on leering and mocking a Nazi superman guarding helpless women. Her hand froze at her side. She could not forgive, and she was terrified and stunned at her own feelings after what she'd just been preaching. And she prayed this in that moment. Jesus, I cannot forgive this man. Please forgive me for not forgiving this man. And at those words, her hand came up, and she took the man's hand and she was set free. All of the past because of Jesus. All of that past erased because of Jesus. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We're about to come to the Lord's table, so if the servers want to come forward. All of us remember Jesus saying, to all of us, Pilots and Peter. <laughs> Father, forgive them. We know these words. We believe it. We see this cross. And we say, that's the symbol of forgiveness. I understand it in my head. And yet for some of us to try and get that hand to come up is so difficult. It's so unfair. And it's so impossible. I'm probably not talking to everybody in the room, but for a handful of us, maybe more, this has become your identity. Maybe you've learned to live with it, and maybe you're in that warm cage of bitterness. Maybe. So here's what I'm offering. Up front, we've put out again for here in the last several weeks, we've put out some candles and there's a place where you can kneel. And you can take a lighter, and you can light a candle, and on these cards is a little prayer, a very simple, short prayer. 
Consider this an experiment. It may work and it may not. But for some of you with deep-seated, deep-seated unforgiveness, waiting for justice that I don't think is going to come. I'm not talking about the court system. I'm just talking about your justice. You're going to have to eat the offense. And consider this experiment where you come up, you kneel at a cross, and you light a candle for that person. And you say like Corey Ten Boom, I cannot forgive. But Jesus, forgive me for not forgiving them. And see what happens. It may just be a step, but it may be the whole thing. You don't know if you don't try. You can do this as we come forward for the Lord's table. Because on the night when Jesus was betrayed by those guys, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it when he given thanks. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the cup of the new covenant. And what is that covenant about? It is about redemption and forgiveness and reconciliation and restitution with God. It's a covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's not a memorial for a dead guy named Jesus. It is an act of saying, God forgives me, I forgive others, I am set free by the blood of Jesus. That's the covenant. Would you stand with me and let's pray the words that Jesus taught us to pray. And I don't mean we recite them. I mean we pray them. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And save us from the time of trial. And deliver us from evil for the kingdom power and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. And therefore, everyone, we proclaim this mystery of faith. Everyone, Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover sacrifice for us, everyone. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Alleluia. The gifts of God for the people of God. Each day, may Jesus Christ be as real to us as this food and drink. Come forward whenever you're ready. Tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the chalice. Eat it right there or even come here to the forgiveness station. And let's end with these words of Paul in his excitement about what the week will hold. Imagine what God will do with you this week. Imagine the work of forgiveness, especially for those of you who lit a candle. I pray and I hope that you can come to terms with all of this. Join me. Glory to God, whose power working in us can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. Glory to him from generation to generation in the church, in Christ Jesus, forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.